Hey everyone, my name is Adam and I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. Thanks for joining us online or in the building right now. We're doing reservations for the services, which I know feels a little weird, but we need to respect capacity restrictions in place right now, and that's the best way to do that. Very soon, we hope to open up our auditorium, but one of the things we're looking at is if we really need to yet. We can limit the risk of exposure to the coronavirus, which has actually seen a little bit of a bump this week, by meeting in smaller groups, in separate rooms, and right now, we're operating at about 50% of that capacity. So until we start to outgrow the smaller rooms, we may hold off on opening the auditorium because we don't need to and why increase the risk of exposure if we don't need to. So we hope you'll join us in one of our venues soon if you're up for that. And if not, no problem. Keep joining us online. We're going to continue the Life Interrupted series studying the story of Joseph. But before we do that, would you just join me in prayer right now? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you today. Whether we're doing it distantly in our homes or whether we're gathering together with other people here on the, on the campus in different rooms, Lord, we just pray that you would guide our thoughts and our words today, that everything would be glorifying to you, that you would teach us how you want us to live, God. Help us to see the way we should live in response to who you are and to the gospel that you have given us, which saves us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever done something that was a mistake or sinful and you feel like you'll just never get over it? Like there's something in your past that haunts you every now and then. Now our brains don't really help us in this way because they're so good at association. So when you see something that reminds you of that mistake, it can hurt a lot. A certain sound or song might remind you of something from your past. Even smells can be so powerful that they take us back to that moment and we relive something we wish we could forget. Do you ever think about something in your past and just feel shame, judgment, condemnation? It's painful to have the mistakes of our past brought back up. Sometimes it feels like we can't get past the past, like it's just this unresolved thing that we live in. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Now, normally I would share some examples here, but some of those might not be appropriate for everyone watching. So let me just give you this one story that I've kind of trimmed down to give you a sense for how this can feel. Her name is Lauren. She was 34 when she wrote this after struggling with some things she did a long time ago. She said, with the slew of bad things that have happened to me, I wonder, am I paying the price for what I did? I believe in a God who wouldn't punish that way, but when you don't want the gift you're given, will the universe offer up that gift again? As I started to get older and was nowhere near having kids, I started to wonder if that was my chance and I blew it. You know, I think that is a sentiment a lot of people feel about many different types of things they've done in the past. And what we're going to do today is look at what the Bible says about dealing with guilt and shame from our past. And the reason we're talking about this today is because it's in our story, in the life of Joseph today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis 42. And if you've been struggling with the sins of your past, you are going to love this story. Even more, you're going to love what God says about shame and guilt. Let me give you the background in case this is your first week with us. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons, but he was the favorite. His daddy, Jacob, loved his mom more than the other boys' moms. 
That's right, there were multiple moms in the family and that led to all kinds of problems. If you thought reality TV was fascinating, read the last 20 or so chapters of Genesis in the New Living Translation and you won't be able to put it down. The other boys got jealous. And one day when Joseph was coming to check on them because his dad had him checking on his older brothers, they decided to kill him. The oldest brother, Reuben, wasn't down with that, so he convinced them all to throw him in a pit instead and leave him to die, but he secretly planned to come back later and rescue Joseph. But Reuben left for a bit, and the other brothers, while Joseph was in that pit, decided to sell Joseph to a caravan heading to Egypt to be sold there as a slave. It was a horrifying and traumatic experience for Joseph, but it ended up being a traumatic experience for the older brothers as well. I was spending some time with pastors in North St. Louis this week, and as we were talking, one of them said this, whenever someone experiences trauma, the one who inflicted the trauma ends up being traumatized as well. Now that is certainly not an excuse for that person. It's just to recognize the reality of how God made us. If someone terribly hurts another person and doesn't feel anything as a result, there's no remorse, no conscience, we have a word for that. They're called a sociopath. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. They can do bad things and not feel anything about it. So the Bible warned us about those people who don't feel bad after they do something wrong. And the question is, what did Joseph's brothers feel after what they did to Joseph. After the terrible thing they did to him, were they able to just go about their lives as if nothing had ever happened? Let's pick up the story now in Genesis 42, verse one. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Now, the author of this book is Moses. He's writing so the people of Israel will understand their history and how God brought them to be a nation. And that history was not always glamorous. It was filled with people who were broken, making horrible mistakes. And the point Moses makes again and again is that although people are not perfectly faithful, God is always faithful. The mightiest heroes of Israel all made mistakes. And while other nations tried to hide the mistakes of their heroes, Moses wanted everyone to know that the people weren't the hero. God was the hero. You probably already know that these brothers will end up becoming the heads of the tribes of Israel. They will be revered by millions, but Moses doesn't want them to be worshiped. God should get all the glory. These guys had issues and Moses wants us to know that. So everything Moses says helps to tell that story, including what Jacob tells his sons. Why are you standing around looking at one another? That's an interesting question. Here's what it tells us. The sons knew there was grain in Egypt. Jacob implies it when he wonders why they aren't already on their way, but they didn't want to go to Egypt. They were hemming and hawing and stalling like kids not wanting to go to bed. And Jacob doesn't get it, he doesn't know, but it's been gnawing on their consciences for the last 20 years. As we'll find out later, it is still very much present in their minds. In fact, they wonder if the bad things that happened to them are payback for what they did to their little brother two decades ago. That caravan they sold him to, it was headed for Egypt. 
Egypt is where they sent their little brother, and it's not like he was a strong, durable kid. He was the pampered one. There's no way he survived the first couple of years as a slave in Egypt. They worked people hard. They had big construction projects where thousands of people died doing the work. None of them wanted to suggest going to Egypt because they all associated it with what they had done. See, they were all traumatized too. So Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt because of their father to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear some harm might come to him. Now, Jacob's still holding on to that past hurt too. Benjamin, by the way, is 30 years old at this point. He has 10 sons, not exactly a kid at this point, but Jacob would not let him go. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. All the foreigners had to come before Joseph to make sure they weren't a national security threat. They probably got searched and then they needed to be questioned to see if there was anything suspicious about them. You know, did you pack your own bags? Have, you, have they been in your possession ever since you packed them? Did anyone else give you something to bring to Egypt with you? You know the routine. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? He demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied, we have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Now pause for a minute there just to appreciate this moment. It goes by in a flash in the text, but don't you think that Joseph had a hard time keeping his jaw off the floor? He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Should he be happy? Should he be horrified? Should he gloat now that he's in power and they're bowing before him? I'm sure it had to be a rush of confusing emotions that he was dealing with and the flashbacks of the trauma he experienced because of these men and their wicked actions. His own flesh and blood took money for his life. Now, perhaps the older and wiser Joseph also realized how annoying and insufferable he was back then. It doesn't excuse their behavior at all, but he wasn't exactly easy to get along with and he would certainly do things differently if he could go back in time. You may be wondering, why, if Joseph recognized them, did the brothers not recognize him? Well, they were adults when they sold him off, but Joseph was just a teenager. He became a man in Egypt. He walks like an Egyptian and talks like an Egyptian. He probably wears the makeup and accessories of Egyptian high society. So he's unrecognizable to them. And he remembered, the Bible says, the dreams he had had about them many years before. It was two decades ago that Joseph dreamed his brothers would bow down before him. Clearly, that was a message from God to indicate what would happen in the future and give him hope for the future. And I don't know for sure, but I think Joseph probably had something of a light bulb moment here. I think Joseph suddenly realized, maybe, why God had not answered his prayers for so long. Why did God allow him to experience such painful trauma? Why did God allow his brothers to mistreat him and sell him as a slave? Why did God allow him to rise and then fall in Potiphar's household? 
Why did God allow him to spend two years sitting in prison before finally being released? And all of it was leading up to this day, the day his childhood dreams from God would be fulfilled, the day when his working, uh, preparing the nation for famine would end up saving his entire family from starvation. And at almost 40 years old, the pain and the waiting started to maybe make sense. Later on, Joseph would tell his brothers, don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. I'm not sure if my take on this would be as positive as Joseph's. And to be honest, he doesn't necessarily get there right away. That's Genesis 45. We're in Genesis 42. But Joseph had changed a lot over the last 20 years for the better. And he wondered, what about his brothers? Were they the same people they once were? Or were they sorry for what they did to him? He couldn't just ask them because they might say anything to get some food right now. But he couldn't just sell them the food and let them go. He needed more time to figure this out. He needed to find out how his father was doing and how his full brother Benjamin was. Did they get rid of him too? He needs to know. And he starts to formulate a plan to figure it out. So Genesis says, he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. This wouldn't have seemed like a strange accusation to the Egyptians standing around him. This is part of Joseph's job, to protect the nation from people trying to take advantage of the food market to find weaknesses in Egypt's defenses. No, my lord, they exclaimed. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We are all brothers, members of the same family. We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. And I wonder if it was difficult for Joseph to keep a straight face when they said they were honest men, but they insisted they were not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there are actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now, and one of our brothers is no longer with us. So Joseph is getting some of the information he really wants to know. If what they're saying is true, his father is still alive and Benjamin is still alive. And that means the brothers, if, if they're not lying, have not done to Benjamin what they did to Joseph. But Joseph insisted, as I said, you are spies. This is how I will test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. So Joseph calls this a test for spying. But really, this is going to be a test of character. It's a test of a changed heart. Did you know God does this with us? God puts tests in our lives as a way to evaluate our heart. Psalm 7, 9 says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. Speaking of God, you who test the minds and hearts. Paul says, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. So just like God tests our hearts, Joseph wants to test his brother's hearts to see if they have changed. And here's the test. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I'll know you are spies. So Joseph put them all in prison for three days. 
And during those three days, Joseph had the chance to think a bit more and he changed his plan. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison, just one. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families. Now in those three days, Joseph did a lot of thinking and he realized that keeping all but one brother in Egypt would mean not enough food could go back for the families. So he shows compassion here by changing his requirement to just one brother staying behind for the test. Then he says, you must bring your youngest brother back to me. This will prove that you are telling the truth and you will not die. To this they agreed. Now all of this happened through an interpreter. The brothers don't know Joseph speaks Hebrew, so they think they can talk discreetly in front of him. And here's what happens. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph. Long ago, we saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. See, that incident really stuck with them. It haunted them. They still remember what his face looked like as he begged them not to kill him. They remember what he looked like as the traitors took him away in chains. There's actually a Psalm about Joseph being sold into slavery and getting hurt by the shackles. They can still hear his cries for mercy. And they remember the coldness of their hearts, their lack of empathy for their own brother. They never got over it. It's why they didn't want to go to Egypt. And it's why now they feel that God is punishing them for what they did 20 years ago. And that's not what's happening at all. But you can see why they would think that. Well, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked, but you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know Joseph understood them for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. It must have been torture for Joseph trying to keep a straight face, trying not to reveal who he was before he could test their character. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. Now here's an interesting question, why Simeon? Why was he the one chosen to be tied up and thrown in prison? Why not Reuben, who was the oldest, or Judah, who was the one that suggested he be sold as a slave? The Bible doesn't specifically say, but the clues are all there. We know that Reuben was not present 20 years ago when the brothers decided to kill Joseph because when he found out about their plan, he talked them out of it. Reuben also wasn't present when Judah suggested selling Joseph as a slave. We also know from the Bible that Reuben had his birthright inheritance as the oldest son removed because of some really bad things he did before that we won't go into right now. That means another son would get the birthright inheritance and normally that would be the next son in line, the second oldest, but that's not what happened. Jacob, the father, preferred Joseph. And instead of Reuben being the overseer, Joseph became the overseer. Joseph didn't have to work with the flocks like the other brothers. He got to hang out at home and wear cool clothes and occasionally check on them and report back to dad. That job should have been Reuben's as the oldest, but instead it went to Joseph because of some things Reuben did. And the reason Reuben had his birthright removed was was pretty legitimate. He, He did something pretty bad. But the son who was next in line got skipped for no apparent 
reason. That brother, the second oldest, was Simeon. Simeon had more reason to hate Joseph than anyone else. He was probably always the meanest to Joseph. We know that he was a hothead because even before they sold off Joseph, Simeon went into a village where someone did something mean to his sister and with just one other brother, Levi, Simeon and Levi killed all the men in the village. And Jacob was horrified by what they did. But Simeon was fine with it. When Joseph approached the brothers right before they kidnapped him in his special coat and Reuben was gone, Simeon was probably in charge as the second oldest. It was likely Simeon who was the ringleader in the plot to kill Joseph. Reuben had to talk them out of it. And now in Egypt, just as Joseph had been bound and captured, Simeon is now bound and captured. Just as Joseph sat in an Egyptian prison, Simeon will now do the same. But I don't think this is revenge. That doesn't match the heart behind anything Joseph is doing here. This is a test. By tying him up and being rough with the the brothers, he's communicating how serious he is and trying not to give away that he is Joseph. And I also think that he probably picked the least likable brother for this test. Simeon the hothead. Simeon, the one who was always complaining about how he should have the birthright after Reuben lost it instead of Joseph. Simeon, the brother, they were least likely to risk their lives for. If Joseph's intention is to see if the brothers have changed, seeing if they will come back for the steady and caring Reuben won't do it. But will they come back for Simeon? Will they now do for Simeon what they would not do for Joseph? I think that's what's going on here. So back to the story. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. Now that had to be a little weird, just getting those extra supplies. And it shows Joseph's character. He gave them the grain they paid for, but he also gave them extra supplies they didn't pay for. Now, maybe he just wanted to provide for them, or maybe he wanted to communicate that he was an honest man of integrity. And if they brought Benjamin back, he would keep his word and nothing bad would happen to them. We should all have that same mindset as Joseph here, willing to go out of our way to show integrity and generosity, never trying to cheat people to get ahead. So the brothers loaded their donkeys with the grain and headed for home. But when they stopped for the night and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money in the top of his sack. Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack and their hearts sank. Trembling, they said to each other, what has God done to us? When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that had happened to them. The man who was governor of the land spoke very harshly to us, they told him. He accused us of being spies and scouting the land, but we said we are honest men, not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father. One brother is no longer with us, which is an interesting way to put that. And the youngest is at home with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man who is governor of the land told us, this is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take grain for your starving families and go home. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother and you may trade freely in the land. As they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. 
A lot of people wonder about those bags of money. What did Joseph, uh, why, why did Joseph put money in there secretly? What was he trying to do? Some people think Joseph was trying to make them squirm a little bit, but I don't think that really matches his character here. Some people think he was trying to set them up so that if he wanted to later, he could accuse them of stealing. I don't think that really fits either. When they eventually do come back and mention this to Joseph's assistant, the assistant acts like it's no big deal and says he remembers receiving their payment so they shouldn't worry about it. Some people think that he was just being generous to them by giving them the money back, but then why do it secretly? Why not just give it to them like he did the provisions for the trip? What we know for sure is that Joseph was testing his brothers, right? Were they truly sorry for what they did? Had they changed? Would they come back for Simeon? Probably the least likable one. Had they done the same thing to Benjamin that they did to Joseph? Were they lying when they said he was back home safe with dad? So here's what I think Joseph was doing. I think he was giving them every reason to stay away. He made the test 10 times harder by secretly returning the money. Now they knew if they came back, they could be accused of stealing. Look at the reaction of the brothers and of Jacob. They were horrified to find the money in the sacks with the grain. They knew this was a terrible thing. They knew it meant returning to Egypt might be a death sentence. Now they have every reason to just cut their losses, take the money and the grain and abandon Simeon like they did Joseph. And that's pretty much where Jacob is at. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is going against me. Jacob pretty quickly concluded, well, Simeon's a goner. <laughs> they can't go back now. But Reuben knows they have to try. Even if it means risking his life, he cannot let this happen again. He must go back and save his brother right away. So he says something really drastic here. You may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I'll be responsible for him and I promise to bring him back. Now that's extreme and it's foolish, but it just goes to demonstrate how serious Reuben was. He didn't chase after Joseph in the caravan. He didn't go to Egypt to try to find him, but he would risk his life now and even the life of his boys to do the right thing this time. But Jacob replied, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead and he is all I have left. And the other boys must be thinking, gee, thanks, dad. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. Now, I know you want to hear what happens next, but we have to stop there and save that for next week. So let's just talk for a minute about what these brothers were experiencing. The guilt from their past haunted them. 20 years later, they remembered the look on Joseph's face as they planned to kill him. They remembered the sound of him begging for his life and they never forgot the evil they did. What they needed was an opportunity for forgiveness. And not to spoil the story, but that's exactly where this is headed. The brothers will get to prove they have changed and Joseph will get to relieve them of their guilt and show them that he forgives them. You may struggle with guilt and shame from your past. Guilt and shame can be a tricky thing to talk about because it has sometimes been used as a stick by religious people to change the behavior of others. So there's baggage when we talk about shame and guilt, but this is not supposed to be the tool of a Christian. Some people think like these brothers that the guilt they walk around with is God's way of punishing them for past sins. 
or that the bad things that happen to them are God's way of paying them back for the wrong they've done. And the Bible does say that God disciplines those he loves. But there's a difference between discipline and condemnation. Here's the purpose of the discipline. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. God's discipline is designed to make you into a better person. It's supposed to lead to confession, which is when we admit we were wrong, and repentance, which is changing our mind about that thing and changing our direction about it, and right living so that we don't do that again. Notice that the result of God's discipline is supposed to be peace. Peace because that thing was dealt with. Peace because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. But condemnation is different than discipline. Condemnation for believers is what happens when you feel guilt and shame, like you still deserve punishment for something, even if you've already confessed and repented. And here is what the Bible says about that. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. If you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need to feel condemned because you belong to Christ. And whatever bad thing you may have been holding on to, that was paid for by Jesus. God's spirit frees you from the power of that sin. And the only reason to keep holding on to that guilt is if what Jesus did wasn't enough. God doesn't want you to walk around in guilt and shame. That's what the gospel is all about. God isn't making you feel guilt or shame for anything you've already confessed and repented of. That feeling may be caused by you dwelling on it or prompted by the temptation of the devil. And if it's temptation, the Bible says God always makes a way of escape. See, God wants you to live a life of peace. God's discipline, when responded to correctly, leads to peace, not guilt or shame. So whenever you're struggling with this, I want to challenge you to read Psalm 103. You may wanna write that down, Psalm 103 to see what God does with the sins of the past for those who love him. And here's my favorite part. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve for his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Do you remember that song, Before the Throne of God Above? It was written over 150 years ago and really rediscovered in the late 20th century. I want to close with some words from this beautiful song. Listen closely. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me.